Today, we listen to one of country music's greats. We ponder who our friend should be. Musically, of course. We watch a sunset that spans 2,000 years of time. And I tell you which Marvel comic book hero I wanted to be while visiting Israel. And we try to decide what we meant when we said the word. All on the way to answering the question, what's wrong with Palm Sunday? Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. About 10 years ago, I took a group of people from the church where I was serving to visit Israel. Now, I'd been there before and found the trip to be an amazingly spiritual experience, so I was really excited to share the experience with this new group. Now, I don't know about you, but there is sometimes for me a disconnect in the Christian message. Much of current Christian teachings are about Jesus as your truly personal and intimate friend. Now, who doesn't want a personal an intimate friend with whom they can share everything and who's always responding in the right way. I'm reminded of the beautiful hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Alan Jackson does a powerful and emotive version of this song that I really enjoy in which he sings the final verse, Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrow share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful Who will all our sorrow share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to Yep, those are the same words, but when they come out of his mouth, they seem to have so much more power. Many of us, me included, are touched by this idea of a personal and very present friend who is always available, always interested, always loving, and happens in this case to be God. Now then, let's move ourselves to reading some scripture. Now, for our purposes here, for what we need to do. We could use almost anything from the New Testament, any story about Jesus. But today, we pick a familiar story from the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. Once, while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore. The fishermen had gone out of them, and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet, if you say so, I will let down the nets. 
When they'd done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break, so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. Here's an iconic story that takes place on the Sea of Galilee, which is the name by which we more commonly call that body of water rather than Lake Gennesaret. And I know this story well. You probably do as well. I've heard it countless times, and there's not a single detail that surprises me, nor particularly stands out anymore. I've heard it so many times. But but if I'm really honest, I guess it was before, for me, never a particularly vivid story. I never really knew anything about the geography of the Holy Land, so this story was not really an intimate part of me, because I just have a little too much distance from this land they describe, both distance in terms of time and distance in terms of miles. For it really wasn't something that was that vividly real to me, because I couldn't picture it. I couldn't see it. So I really couldn't feel a part of it. And that's where a trip to the Holy Land can become so powerful. I will quickly tell you two experiences I had on my very first trip that absolutely changed my faith and made it seem so much more vivid. Both were instances where I felt particularly close to Jesus. One of the interesting things about the Holy Land is that there are three types or categories of pilgrimage sites there. The first category encompasses places of certainty. We know it happened here. No one debates it. Example, Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Remember, that's the excursion that he took with the disciples where Peter winds up professing Jesus as Christ. And we know exactly where Caesarea Philippi is. You can go visit it today. There's no debate. The second category is a little more vague. We believe it may have happened here, and this is true of the location of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. We aren't really precisely sure where it happened, but tradition has it that the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem was built on the spot, but we don't really know that for sure. And the final category describes places where we have no idea where it happened, but this is a popular location that people visit. For example, there's an alternative site in Jerusalem for the burial of Jesus. Remember the burial of Jesus, traditionally believed to have happened in the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. But this secondary location, is it an accurate location? Probably not. Does it help us picture what it would have been like back in the day of Jesus? Absolutely, because this particular one has an outcropping that looks like a skull. Remember, Jesus, the place where he was crucified and buried nearby, it's called Golgotha. And so this gives us an opportunity to kind of picture what it may have been like. 
But it's that first category, the we-know-it-happened-here category, which is so powerful and yet strangely so elusive. Because if we are certain of a location, and by we, I mean as in Christianity, then we probably built a church there, and I mean right on top of the location, either a thousand years ago or more. So there are few places where you get to stand where Jesus stood and see what Jesus saw. Now, I'll tell you a quick aside that leads up to my next story. Some years ago, when our children were fairly young, my wife got the chance through a scholarship to do a month-long Outward Bound experience in the mountains. And we were both really excited for her to have this experience. But it meant that other than occasional card that I could write and that would get through to her when she resupplied, we would be entirely out of contact for an entire month. Obviously, I knew that they had to stop and make camp every night, so I found a lot of comfort and sense of closeness to her during that time simply by looking up at the moon at night and knowing that at that moment, we were both seeing the same thing. I had a similar experience in Israel on my first trip. One of the first nights we spent in Israel was at a kibbutz on the Sea of Galilee. To me, I remember one evening watching the sun slip behind Mount Arbel, which rises dramatically very near the Sea of Galilee. As I watched the sunset, it occurred to me it may be difficult to see Israel as Jesus saw it and lived it. But at this moment, I was remarkably close. This was the same sun, the same lake, the same mountain. And they were all coming together, combining in a sunset the same way Jesus must have witnessed hundreds of times in his own life. It was a powerful moment for me that helped me feel like I was able to come a little closer to spanning the 2,000 years that were between us. Another powerful moment that I felt close was when we visited the archaeological site of the home of the high priest at the time of Jesus there in Jerusalem. This is where Jesus was taken after his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, if you go in to this place and go down some stairs that are cut out of stone, you can descend into a small pit. This place falls into the first category of sites. We are certain of the location. This is without a doubt where Jesus was held on the night of his arrest as he awaited his trial and execution the next day. Our group gathered together, crowded into this tiny space, and read from Scripture the story of Peter denying Jesus. That story would have been taking place in the courtyard just outside as Jesus was in this space that we gathered. It was a sobering and powerful moment to be in this place, to stand where he stood, to find ourselves there, and to try to put ourselves in the mindset of how he felt at that moment. For a Christian pilgrim, much of your time in Israel when you travel there is spent in search of Jesus, the real Jesus, anything that will make Scripture come alive and therefore give your faith new context and depth. 
There were probably 15 years between my two trips to the Holy Land. And to give you some sense of how things had changed, on the first trip, we went to Bethlehem to visit the church that is believed to be the site of Jesus' birth. Our group walked in, walked the length of the church. There was already one group in the small grotto that is purported to be the site of his birth. But we waited just a couple of minutes. They left, and then we had the space to ourselves. The next trip that I took 15 years later was entirely different. Everywhere we went were lines of people. The number of people had increased many times, a hundredfold or more often, to places that we went. Where we had gone before and not waited at all, now we waited two or three hours in line to see the same thing. On one such occasion, I remember vividly, we were visiting the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, a huge place that houses the possible sites of both Jesus' crucifixion site and burial tomb. I remember waiting a long time to get to the place of his crucifixion in this building. This time, as I was standing, I was surrounded by a sea of people who clearly had all come together. I'm not sure where they were from, but I was surrounded by at least a hundred people all speaking the same language. And as we waited in line, I began to notice, because we were all swarmed around in a large group, that they were making an effort to slip in front of me. One would push me kind of from one side, and then another would push from another side. And while I was getting jostled and I'd maybe start to lose my balance a little bit or shift my footing, several of them who were behind me would scurry past. I began to try to set my feet so that I could not so easily be pushed, but when they would shove me, if I held my ground or if I pushed back, I would hear them speak the only words I ever heard them speak in English. And they would admonish me by saying, do not push, do not push. It was not a wonderful experience. I really wanted to prepare myself for this incredibly holy sight. Instead, I found myself fighting for position and having fantasies of picking these people up over my head and beginning to throw them in various directions. Now, something is deeply wrong when I am approaching what is potentially the holiest site in all of Christendom, and I'm dreaming of turning into the Incredible Hulk and throwing people around the room. Now, why do I tell you this story? Because when we approach the story of Palm Sunday, which is the first day of Holy Week, we are greeted by this remarkable image of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. People surrounded him. They cut palm branches from the trees and even took off their cloaks to pave the way to soften the path on which he was riding. They yelled, Hosanna! They yelled the word Hosanna. And it is in this context that it is clearly meant of a word of jubilant respect. The origin of the word comes from a word which means one who has saved or one who is saving or one who will save. There's some debate about that. At its most basic level, in the context of Palm Sunday, it can possibly be understood to mean save now, which is simultaneously wonderful and troubling. 
There's little doubt that the disciples must have felt that the mission of Jesus was finally, to put it in modern terms, finally going viral. And the people who were surrounding him and singing his praises were all gathered around to pledge their devotion and loyalty. They wanted to be on Team Jesus. At its most basic level, that's what their shouts of Hosanna mean. But much like my journey towards the holy site in Jerusalem was not all that it should have been, this trip for Jesus into the holiest place in all of Israel, Jerusalem itself, was not all that it seemed either. Now, by the way, as an aside, and to keep me out of trouble here, there are parables and there are allegories. Parables are stories, like Jesus used, that are simply meant to make a single point. They're not intended to be analyzed element by element, as an allegory is. The parallel of my story and Jesus' story is really intended to be a parable, not an allegory. Or, to put it more bluntly and clearly, I'm in no way trying to equate me with Jesus. Okay, I feel better now. The problem with Palm Sunday is that it is easy to hear Hosanna shouted and understand it was intended to mean, you are our Savior now. But it could equally be understood as an imperative, save now. The more hopeful interpretation of this story would be that they were in essence beseeching Jesus to teach them, lead them, guide them. And in the moment, that's certainly the way it plays. But but given that just four short days later, he's been arrested, he's sitting in that pit, the one I visited in the ancient home of the high priest in Jerusalem, and even his closest friends and followers are at best scattered and at worst denying that they even know him, we can assume the hosannas that were shouted in the passion of the moment may have had more personal ambition behind them rather than purely seeking God's direction. I will tell you a kind of behind-the-scenes insight as an ordained minister, particularly in the liturgical tradition of the Christian church where we have a lot of services throughout Holy Week. The part of Palm Sunday that really bothers me, really bothers many clergy, is the fact that we look out at the people who have come for that Sunday service, for that festivities of that single day, and then we won't see them again until the next Sunday, which is Easter. Now, as a Christian, I know we're busy and we have a lot going on in our lives, and it's very easy to show up for Palm Sunday and the celebration of Easter. But when we do so, and I don't even just mean physically showing up, but when we do so without really paying attention, we cheat ourselves because we don't allow ourselves to ever really engage the rest of the story that takes place between those two days. Or on a more important personal and theological level, Palm Sunday, the story of this particular day is, in my estimation, a question, and it demands an answer. If you were a Christian, 
then you believe that we were there. Those are not hosannas shouted by those other people back in time. Those were hosannas that were shouted by all followers of Christ throughout time. So Palm Sunday is a question. You shouted Hosanna. You said it. The question is, what did you mean by it? What do you want to mean by it? It's time to decide. That's what Palm Sunday asks us. It's time to decide what do you mean by the word Hosanna? Are you going to shout the praise of Jesus and demand that he follow you? Or are you going to slow down? Realize the opportunity you have in this moment and ask Jesus to help you follow him. That's all for today. Just a reminder, you can find me on Facebook and YouTube. Just search for Sky Pilot Faith Quest. Remember, I've got some videos that I'm doing for Lent, so if you want to check them out, check them out on YouTube. And if you want to get in touch with me, my email address is dan at skypilot.zone, S-K-Y-P-I-L-O-T dot Z-O-N-E. As always, I'd love to hear from you. On your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. Thanks for listening to Sky Pilot Faith Quest. I invite you to send me a question or leave a review. And remember, the sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions. Thank you.